Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwall-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement, including climate change, human health, economics, and food, as well as other deeply interconnected topics. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Regenerative by Design podcast. I'm Joni Kimwall-Moore, your host, and today we have a awesome human and old friend of mine, Dr. Travis Denton, joining us from WSU, and we're going to talk about nutrition, phytochemicals, and health, and I bet we're going to talk about a lot of other things, too. <clears throat> kind of a fun fact, I worked with Travis way, way back in the 90s at University of Montana. I was a lab grunt in his lab. <laughs> so he had me washing lots of equipment and running tests that were tedious that no one else wanted to do. And welcome, Travis. Hey, thanks for having me. It's super awesome to be here. It's been fun all these years later. I mean, what are we on now? 30 years almost. So <laughs> it's, it's been a very long time and I just am in ecstatic to be on your show and to be seeing how awesome you're doing in your life and changing everybody's lives around you. It's awesome. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You know, it's so cool to have a podcast because you get to bring on like a whole, you know, variety of people to talk about a topic that is obviously really important to me, like regenerative food, regenerative agriculture, sustainability, nutrition. I mean, those are things that have always been super important to me, as you know, even as a young person. And it's kind of been a cool process watching the world evolve. And now we're looking at all of these things um, through the connected lens of food. And so naturally, um, you know, all these years later, I, I'm just really thrilled to have you on here so we can go a, l a little bit deeper into molecular side of things, the research side of things. Um, I think we should lean in a little bit on that whole public access to data and how that affects community building and can be great, can be hostile, all the in-between. So we'll, we'll get there towards the end of the show. But first, I think people would love to know a little bit more about you and where you came from, where you studied, how in the world did you end up becoming a PhD medicinal chemist? pretty cool well, yeah well um thanks a lot well it's really cool because um i i was an air force brat so i flew around with my folks um since birth but in about third grade i ended up in moses lake washington and we had a farm out in warden washington go figure it was an irrigated farm and we rotated um things like alfalfa and wheat underneath it um so i got to work on the farm as a kid so i've been ex i'm really excited about all this regenerative um, food health um, from way back. Mm -hmm. And um, from Moses Lake, both of my parents went to Central Washington University, so it was great. I went to college. at I graduated from Moses Lake High School, wanted to be a pre-med major, went to 
Central Washington University was a pre-med major, and my mom was all excited. And then Dr. John Gerties showed up to teach medicinal chemistry. And <laughs> guess what? My mom hates him to this day. <laughs> <laughs> the rest was history. <laughs> That's right. He converted me. He oh, totally awesome. converted me. So I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help people all the time, right? And then I was like, well, heck, I could do that from the med- from the medicine side of things, yes. right? So this is really cool. And he was studying antidepressants at the time. And then from there, it was history. I, I moved from there, went to graduate school at the University of Montana, um, yep. where we met. And we had a great time with Dr. Selvage back in those days and your sisters. And, um, oh, yeah. Just, Esslinger. Just so much. <laughs> Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. Those were such formative years. <laughs> they they were excellent because we did everything, right? From the, the science thing to the still growing up thing to getting to know each other really well thing. It was it was just really great. Yeah. You I know? still have some of the um coasters from like Charlie's <laughs> that have like complex chemistry equations written out on them and um and they're literally like spilled on and you know there's pictures and funny haha things and I still kept them because they're just so funny like only in college <laughs> does that kind of stuff happen maybe we should try to revive that because those were pretty innovative fun you know inspiring days well we do need to revive that or if you take a really close look at it and look at all the publications on PubMed that we have, you will find those equations. Monica nice. brings those up all the time. She's like, oh, remember, you know, we'd sit there and you'd be drawing all this stuff with Joni. And I was like, well, yeah, guess what? They're all published. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. I love that. <laughs> Did you credit Charlie B's? <laughs> Lots of it. Yeah, the Dinosaur Cafe and Charlie The Dinosaur B's. Cafe. Oh, gosh, that's so great. I love that. It's so much fun. And I, I really miss those days of science and working at the bench and I was so lucky at my time at University of Montana because I got to work with you guys, Chuck Thompson, some really, you know, visionary researchers, Sean Esslinger. And then I got to work with Tom DeLuca over in soil sciences. And I was a soil grunt for him as well and did all their chemistry labs um, for their research program. And and so it was just a very dynamic um, background to have um, going through life. You just look at things differently once you think in chemistry. So tell us a little bit about you know, what you're doing now, because you live and breathe chemistry, that's your life. And uh, at a very deep, very nerdy, but amazing level. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, so that that's what we do now is like I said before, we focus on making people better. Okay, that's our only goal in life is to um, use chemistry, organic chemistry, Um, We say medicinal chemistry. Nobody really knows what that means. It's more pharmaceutical chemistry, right? Mm -hmm, So it's mm -hmm. cool because we know organic chemistry. Phytochemistry is organic chemistry, right? Your Mm -hmm. ethnobotany and stuff all comes to molecules. It just breaks down to the small molecules. We think they're big, long fatty acids. When people say long-chain fatty acids, they're really small molecules that we can manipulate. And obviously with farming practices, which I know we'll get into, Mm -hmm. we can manipulate in the plants, which manipulates the meat, which manipulates health, everything's really cool. Yeah. So it's really neat to know from like you learned way back when from, you know, the difference between an omega-6 and Mm -hmm. omega-3. We know how we can separate them. We know how, you know, hey, they're not all bad, but that brings us to the global thing where you get everything in moderation. Right. Yeah. It's the big picture in the whole system, like how it all works together. So Exactly. So I, you know, it's like 
and we'll also talk about this is you know the people of we all need to get along right and that's why mm-hmm. i'm here right because mm-hmm. people are like you are the enemy you're big pharma you make drugs this is not cool I'm like wait 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 we make drugs but we make drugs to help people right and mm-hmm. yes we do synthetic chemistry we need to make these synthetic compounds um but we're doing it for a reason okay yeah we're right in act yeah we're in academia i don't disagree you know big pharma is a scary big monster mm-hmm. you know but bottom line with us academics pushing drugs into the pharmaceutical industries we're trying to help people right and how do you make them better safer and innovative, um, you know, looking at pharmacotherapeutics from a totally new angle. Um, there's a whole new frontier of research that is out there that has never even been thought of before. And people kind of forget about that. So I think that you guys are leading the charge on on bringing the best side of the pharmaceutical industry out. The last few decades have been complicated. We'll put it that way. I mean, big pharma, big agrochemical, all of those huge multinational companies. I mean, they drive economic forces, social forces, cultural health impact, etc. And they really do kind of exist in their own vacuum. They drive all these other forces, but it doesn't mean that you're like part of that. And I'm, I'm really a huge fan of of pharmaceutical chemistry as a science. Um, even though, you know me, I was like a, I'm, I'm a certified master herbalist. I, I really focused on nutraceuticals, but I'm also an ICU nurse. And I can tell you, if you get hit by a bus and you're dying you're, and you're in the ICU, you're going to want really leading edge pharmaceuticals that we know down to the molecule, you know, how they work, what they're doing, how they're going to save your life. And we need to continuously improve our game when it comes to um, achieving health. And it's a, it's a bigger picture than just drugs versus no drugs. You got that right. Yeah. And I love how plants really are chemists (laughs) and ecosystems are chemists, you know, and ecosystems are chemists and there's so many drivers. So, you know, for you, and I'm just going to dive right in here, you know, being a pharmaceutical chemist, how does this enable you to see a world that it, that most people are blind to? Like, I'm sure the way you look at things is different. Like somebody might walk down the street and they see a yellowing leaf and you might look at it and you're like, oh gosh, you know, the chlorophyll. And, you know, like I, I understand, you understand the spectrometry behind why it's now yellow and not green. And, you know, how does that make you tick as a human? Well, how do you say it without saying like a sounding like a pompous jack face? It's, <laughs> it makes you see things better, right? Well, I think it opens your eyes, you know, and it comes to your personal upbringing and stuff as well, right? So I'm a chemist. I could break things down into these little itty bitty molecules, which works for me because you say, you know, an herbalist. I love it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because what exactly are we doing? Well, we're trying to find the right herbs to treat an ailment. And that's right. all I'm trying to do. But, you know, the country that we live in, with the FDA, they make you find that molecule in the yeah. herb, right? So that they yes. can regulate that molecule where, you know, it's like that they might not work the way they work as a mixture, right? From well, that's you know, what a we wonderful discovered. plant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just doesn't work like that. Reductionistic mindset doesn't work when you're dealing with things like complex herbal extracts or like when I was down in the Amazon with Dr. Medora and, you know, a number of people and, you know, here we're looking at, okay, there's this like really complex, very definable 
you know, biochemical reaction that's happening from this elixir. And we separated them out and tried each individual plant on, you know, to try to elicit the same thing. And it didn't work because you had to have a combination of three or four plants to block necessary enzymes or, you know, some sort of agonistic pathway. And I'm like, how in the world did they figure that out? When the statistical probability of figuring that out is like one in a billion. <laughs> it's really incredible. Right. Yep. And like you said, a plant in an ecosystem is a chemistry lab, right? It's, it is. It, these plants are still alive because they've you know, created defense systems where animals don't want they, – they spit her. So the animal doesn't want to eat them, right? Yeah. And But a human will taste that bitter and be like, oh, I don't want to eat it. And then they'll – see some pretty colors or something and say, Ooh, I want to try that again. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> or a deer eats it and says, I'm never trying that again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And so, you know, you look at this whole ecosystem approach and I love the research that's going, it's like my dream research that's starting to evolve right now. And it's really being pioneered by, you know, some recent studies that have come out, some people who are really in, in academia, but then also some people who are outside of academia and are more freelance, pri very private sector, um, and we'll talk about that more too, but I think it's really pioneering this whole concept of beyond nutrition, beyond um, this reductionistic mindset of like, oh, it comes down to one molecule. And, you know, that's what the FDA does. They focus on one molecule, but now we're starting to see um, a molecule is just a piece of a puzzle, a greater puzzle, and that you know, you look at a piece of broccoli that's grown in a, in a, like a permaculture broccoli, like a permaculture garden that has really intact soil rhizosphere. It's maybe got neighboring plants and you'll do a chemical evaluation of it. And it's like a powerhouse of things, not only nutritionally, but also from a phytochemical profile standpoint. And then you take like a piece of broccoli that was grown in a super um, chemically intensive agricultural set setting and, um, you know, probably very exhausted soils and it pales in comparison when it comes to both macros, micros, but also phytonutrients. And I was just wondering if, if you could talk a little bit on that topic for us from a chemist well, perspective, a medicinal chemist perspective. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And that's why everything I think about comes back to, you have to see the world as a whole, right? I mean, how many people in the world want to and need to eat broccoli, right? Or say, you say for example, a really, really big crop like wheat, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if a farmer wants to be a wheat farmer in America, they need to be able to grow wheat. And, you know, mm -hmm. one of these studies talks about, you know, oh, one of the, the great studies that you brought me on to was comparing two wheat farms from Oregon, Anyway, you'll probably bring that up later. But the <laughs> problem is like where the majority of the wheat is grown in Washington state, it's grown in this area where there's no rain. Okay. Where mm -hmm. there's, you know, growing it with those cover crops, you know, and not using the, the molecules to stop the weeds from stealing the water. It's just not possible. And if we didn't yeah. have those tens of hundreds of thousands of acres of wheat, it might change everything right um so yeah. that's why it's hard right but when it comes down to oh my gosh you know this sustainable practice where we don't where there's areas where we don't need chemicals and the cover crops you're right it's a synergistic effect and i'm you mentioned yeah. it before they all these new chemicals are there that weren't there before because they yeah. have their 
brothers and sisters just working with each other in that ecosystem. Right. It's, it's a, it's like a community effort. And what's yeah. really fascinating now, and, and we work, I work with very closely with the Farm Smart program, which is Spokane Conservation District and mm. predominantly wheat farmers, a lot of Palouse focus, but we do work with farmers throughout Eastern Washington and, and also in Idaho. And we're working a lot with cover cropping in dryland wheat farming situations and finding the right cover crops that what we're learning is that they're not competing for water at all. They're actually stabilizing the soil and allowing better moisture retention and better water p- penetration when we do get a little tiny bit of rain, like a thunder shower in the in the summer or whatever. And then we're capturing all of that and absorbing it like a sponge. So it's a really fun um, leading edge um, research zone right now that I think we're learning a lot about every day and challenging a lot of assumptions that we've just always thought, well, it just won't work because of X, Y, Z. And now we're like, well, maybe it will. Maybe we just needed to change our approach. Yeah, and then like so you cool. said, then we have this happy root ecosystem that starts to drive all these nutritional things. And then, you know, lo and behold, like that paper I sent to you from Dr. Montgomery and Ray Arcoletta and others, where they started to study the nutritional effects on like something way down the value chain, like beef. Um, it's a very fascinating right. concept. I'd, I'd love you just to go go on a little tangent on that for a moment, if you would. Oh, sure. Yeah, well... Um Oh my gosh. And the way that you brought up the cover crops is so amazing. We could talk for 10 hours on that, right? Because yeah. anyway, that that's wonderful. And I'm glad that you're researching it locally. Um, anyway. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know it's fun because so... it's not every day you meet a chemist who has a farming background. So I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so cool because yeah, I mean, you lose all the water, not from just it evaporating on the top. It's these zones that it comes up from and if your cover yep. crops are grabbing that and the cover crops could get tilled back in you are saving water what a wonderful yeah. concept um that's so great and then so what were we going to talk about the the yeah so when we look at that whole building like a better nutritional profile from the soil up that you know people don't often think about that the nutrition of the meat that they eat is actually based on like the quality of the soil in which their their food was grown in it's like that you are what they ate concept <laughs> right right yeah so and and again i'm only going off of this one article that i read and um yeah it's amazing so they compared what uh, a wheat a wheat field where they mm-hmm. got the food for cattle <laughs> and for pigs and they did cover crops, organic, no fertilizers, and then and they were both no-till. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's that's cool. Yeah. Um, and then the it, they did the experimental analysis on the fatty acids, right? So the omega threes mm-hmm. versus the omega sixes in the meat after yeah. in these two crops. It's wild, it's, right? Oh, it's so wild, man! It's and you so cool. Get, yeah, you get so much more omega three fatty acids. Yeah, um, in this beef, in this yeah. pork from, and it's like we're sipping. hacking biology to make it healthier. Totally, <laughs> it's amazing. It's it's so it's so mind bending to me that we can have that concept where we can we can really hack how to make a better superfood just naturally in foods that are just commonly eaten. It's nothing. It's nothing really fringy. I mean, a hamburger is a hamburger. <laughs> like there's Absolutely. really nothing fringy about that. Like for most people that is like, you know, if you grow up in America, that is the most ubiquitous food that Americans eat. And, um, you know, to think that you can really 
change the notion of it being complete junk food and turn that upside down is a really powerful notion. But then you think about all the collaboration it takes. I mean, and then the overlay of science to really drive that. And then of course the economic scalability, which people are working on that too. But you know, I, I love that from a, a medicinal chemistry perspective, you probably see the value on how that could really impact human health and, and help reduce human suffering a lot. Yeah, well, absolutely, right? When we think about omega-3 fatty acids in a medicinal chemistry point of view, it's they're the anti-inflammatory group, mm-hmm. right? And the omega-6s are the inflammatory group. And yeah. when it comes to brain health and anti-inflammatory is the stuff. That's what you want. You want a high level of this because what's happening, and we study lots of neurological diseases like Alzheimer's disease, ALS, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. And these are, they are sort of, we study them from the brain point of view. And I can link every single one of those diseases to reactive oxygen species, which are free radicals, which Mm -hmm. we all hear about, but it's like, wow, that's kind of weird. And antioxidant, well, I'll tell you what, the free radicals are destroyed by your antioxidant defense mechanism. So Mm -hmm. the more antioxidants you get, the better brain health you're going to have. So there we go, all the way down to the bottom. Better brain health with better antioxidants, more antioxidants by feeding the cows this wheat, growing this wheat because of the cool cover crops and a nice ecosystem underneath. Wow, there you go, full circle. Yeah, and then then you overlay the fact that there's carbon sequestration so that could start helping push back on climate change. Like, when I look at that whole big picture, my mind is blown literally every single day. It's really it's really amazing, but I think for so many people, there's a huge disconnect. Like it's hard to think of us as a beneficial driver to the ecosystems or beneficial driver in climate because we're so trained that humans are always bad no matter what we do. And um but I think a lot of people really lean into this notion of like health. Like that's a tangible thing. It's something that I feel like people can cling to as like an early adopter concept. So you know, how do we build in this concept of food as medicine, like on a, on a deeper level? It's, it's, it's like, how do, we, how do we hack our food system to grow a lot of the essential medicines that we need for everyday living and health? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think, again, <laughs> it, goes back to, it goes back to family. You know, it's like if you, you know, my son will go out and eat a hamburger at McDonald's or something, but he'd Mm -hmm. much rather have, you know, a pork chop with green beans and mashed potatoes, right? That Mm -hmm. we make at home. And it's like, great, if we can entrain more of that, it's like, okay, does it taste as good with just the pork chop and the mashed potatoes? No, you want those green beans in there. And it's like, that's where the, you know, all those vitamins that you need you get from and you know when a baby spits out some food and you're like oh they don't like that let's move on to something else because you have nine thousand options now right it's like no 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 they just it felt weird right try yeah, again because try that's again. the healthier stuff yeah let's let's yeah raise raise everybody and then again now that we're adults be able to stop listen let your blood pressure go back down before their statement <laughs> is done and have a logical conversation with other people, right? Yes. Because again, you've got to see everything, not just mm-hmm. with your blinders on. Yeah, that power of observation, the power of listening and seeing the big picture is is something that we're woefully deficient in currently 
culturally. So I, I think no, no conversation on anything is, is uh, complete without leaning into that a little bit. And especially in science and you being a real legitimate scientist. And I know there's been so much upheaval um, over the last few years, but especially the last couple about what is legitimate data? What is legitimate science? Who is, is skilled to interpret it? Is it something that everybody can do? I mean, it's great that people have access, but it's a complex topic. Yeah, I think it's very complex. And that's, again, as long as a person doesn't think they're an expert when they're not. Okay. Mm -hmm. Am I an expert at medicinal chemistry? Not yet. And I've been a PhD in medicinal chemistry for two decades. Long time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And no, I'm not an expert in it. I, I learn stuff every single day. Um, now, interpreting the data depends on where you get the data. Okay. Again, this it's just it's an easy comparison because it's the thing that happens in America. Okay. You can get the so some source collects data and then it's mined via CNN and -hmm. that same data is mined by Fox Mm -hmm. and look at the, the way it's interpreted completely different, right? Yeah. Those two, those two things. So you can't do that. You just can't. I mean, data Mm -hmm. is data and yeah, you need to know when somebody's not analyzing it, right. You need to be able to see through that. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what we just can't. Um, it's so weird. We're here to talk about chemistry. It always comes back to talking about personal responsibility. You know, it's like if you don't trust them, that's fine. OK, do your own research. Make sure that you look at it right. But don't just look at that one source. Um, the data's out there and nobody right? Has enough time to spend with their kids. Nobody has yeah, enough yeah. time to, to have family time at home over dinner. Who has mm-hmm. time to mine data if they're not yeah. a data miner? If right? that's not their job <laughs> full time. I know exactly. it's, it's crazy. And how are we expected to know what's right and what's wrong if people keep feeding it, right? Mm-hmm. Different ways. And that's a thing. That's why there's an upheaval because there's a side, right? If you're mm-hmm. on the left side or on the right side, people mm-hmm. love to say that they're in the middle, but nobody really is. And it's, um, I guess I am because I want everyone to be in the middle. Let's listen to each other. Yeah. And talk. But yeah. As a friend of mine says, not left, not right, forward. I'm in the forward camp. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Because we'll never reach a solution if we're it's just like, we have to correct this data because they said it this way and this data because they said it this way. So if the I think publicly available data is great because mm-hmm. then you don't have to hear what CNN said or what Fox said. It's just like you look at it. Yeah. Right. You but you have to know how to look at it. Um, and there's millions of different ways to spin a number. And, oh, gosh. You know, statistics. Like, I oh. mean. I mean, how many, how many credits of statistics did we take? I mean, I hate to even think of it because it wasn't fun. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> so many. many. And, then, and every day there's a – why is there a new statistical method that just got invented the other day? Because we want something to fit this new data that we have, right? It's like yeah, yeah. shouldn't statistics be statistics like math is math, right? Mm-hmm. Why is there old math or new math? Um, chemistry – now that's the cool thing, right? Chemistry's chemistry is chemistry. 
you know? Um, yeah. Alpha linoleic acid is alpha linoleic acid. If I make it in my lab, it's literally the same molecule that, yeah. well, not the same molecule, but the same molecular formula and structure that you got out of a plant. Right. Right. So just because things are synthetic doesn't mean they're different. They're it's the not. same molecule. Right. It's the, right. It's the same and it's going to be the same where, wherever you make it in the world. I mean, it's like there is some really refreshing truths that exist in chemistry that I find to be really reassuring. Like, I think that's one of the things I have always loved about chemistry I was so intimidated when I first took it. I didn't ever think I'd be drawn into it, let alone getting like pretty much a minor. I think I am yeah. one credit oh. short of a minor in chemistry or something like that. I, I can't think remember. You got a master's. <laughs> I spent so much time. Oh my gosh. I spent so much time in the chemistry lab that I should have just gotten a, a degree in it. But, you know, it's, I think that that's one of the things I always loved so much about it is like you can argue the, nuance, the nuances of so many things, but chemistry does have like a concrete set of, kind of definitives where you're like, hey, it's either present or it's not. And um, that's refreshing. And I think that, you know, again, that's where chemistry can be so, so awesome as a guiding light of moving nutrition forward and moving wellness forward and coming back to this kind of quantitative home of like, hey, you know, we're, we're working to develop this new way of approaching agriculture and food systems that's more regenerative, more health focused, more climate friendly. But where we're going to get the data that's going to quantify the positive effects of this are a going to come from chemistry <laughs> and b going to come from chemistry because you know even if you're looking at carbon sequestration well guess what it's a it's a bunch of different lab um, sets that are sent out and soil chemistry sets and you know there's definitely qualitative measurements of practice and method etc but when it comes down to it chemistry is the language of what we often value as true. Yeah, I I can't agree with you more as well as but the the synergism is is just there. Again, we can like we said, doesn't matter where linoleic acid comes from. It we can measure it, right? And we know exactly what we're looking at. But that's where it's cool because that's where chemistry and say ethnobotany come in. Yes. Because we can measure Hey, look, we know for as much of a fact we can say a fact is that there's more so let's talk about all of them now, right? more omega-3s in this plant than there was in this plant. Okay, mm -hmm. that's using chemistry, but we couldn't have got there without you, right, changing the soil system around so that we can make that change happen. It's just great. Mm -hmm. Everything goes hand in hand as long as you listen to one another. Yeah, I know, and we get that inter interdisciplinary cooperation and collaboration, which is a really important part of this movement because how do you harness a an army of people from many different disciplines and many different careers and, you know, all kind of marching to the same drumbeat of like, Hey, how do we impact um, human health and wellness and our planet through food? Something that we all have to do every day. Most of us at least three times a day. So, you know, it's a, it's a really powerful notion, but I, I do wonder, you know, with the USDA and FDA and all these regulatory um, over, you know, oversight type, you know, they're big pressures. I mean, they, they really dictate a lot of, what actually gets to go out and hit the public, <laughs> you know, like you said, medicinal herbs, it's like, you can't approach the validity of a medicinal herb just based on a reductionistic single active molecule perspective. It just doesn't work like that. And so what we're up against in this new movement of like really embracing food as medicine from a high level 
ecosystem approach, like we're going to have to figure out how to remedy that and how to look at it um, without that just single, you know, silver bullet mindset. I don't know if you have any ideas about how we could approach that or how we might even just start talking about that. Well, I think um, it'll never happen in the United States. Well, because it's always going to be a small movement because basically everything's economically driven, right? Um, everybody wants to be healthier, but they don't have time to be healthier or, you know, mm -hmm. so the, um, the USDA can give out grants so we can in, implement these better farming practices, right? But those big companies that are already out there, they don't want to change because they're already making money because they're going to have to not make as much money to do it this way, right? Um, so we could do it though, right? And it's and it does take the movement at the bottom, and it does take like your podcast. This is reaching more people, which is great because maybe we can reach more chemists start thinking. out there. Exactly yeah, start to thinking. say, hey, listen, this could be. I mean, I know you you study Alzheimer's disease, and we're trying to make this molecule so we can make it better. But think about this. Maybe there's this, hey, academic chemist, there's this USDA grant out there that these farmers are working on getting to increase this alpha or omega-3 fatty acid. Mm -hmm. Maybe you should get together with them, and you could be the analytical part. Then you could learn more about this, and then yeah. you can start talking to the FDA about, oh, my gosh, farming practices, they just need to be learned, right? Not mm -hmm. one molecule. Yeah, <laughs> it right. It's the entire system. It's a system. And it makes me wonder, because, you know, you look at like what we're up against with American economic, you know, macroeconomic structures that keep certain practices in place. I mean, I always say farming is the most non-democratic, non-capitalistic industry of all because it has no free market pressure <laughs> and it's subsidized by the government. So it's not a free market at all. It's like a fallacy. And so <laughs> you think about how do we overlay free market pressures again on agriculture and on food and big food is changing. In fact, we've got their attention. It's very fascinating because I think what they're seeing and nobody says this, I might be completely wrong, but I remember growing up, I mean, you're, we're the same age, so smoking, everybody smoked, oh. everybody smoked, and it was allowed on airplanes, it was allowed in restaurants, it was allowed everywhere when we were kids. Well, what happened when we started to have some precedence-setting lawsuits that truly proved that tobacco was the cause of expensive healthcare and early death? Well... What's coming now, and we know what happened to the tobacco industry, what's coming now is that there have been some more and more legal actions out there that are saying, hey, you know, these chemicals or this type of food is actually causing A, expensive healthcare, which is a burden to the nation, and B, shortening people's lifespan. And our generation is going to be the first generation to have a shorter lifespan than we've seen um, for several decades. Like... I have a friend um, who owns a health, home health agency and they're already starting to model for that. That the and length, yeah, the actual length of our life will probably be shorter than our grandparents and parents. Right. And see, that's of diet. a nice, yeah, and that's a model, right? But think about this, um, the increased cost of healthcare. You're right. I'm glad that you said that people are starting to notice on the movement because they'll really start to notice. When yeah, money talks. All, <laughs> all the baby boomers start getting Alzheimer's disease, 
Okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to be, we're talking like a trillion dollars. We don't have the year. infrastructure. No, we don't. And if we can say, look, by eating these types of healthy foods, we can reduce the free radicals, reduce the oxidative mm-hmm. stress in the brain, and that will combat against Alzheimer's disease. Then yeah. again, your, the movement might be even bigger. And it's, and again, it's not, let's take alpha linoleic acid. It's eat more broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, I love we it. Can, we can do it and they'll see, they, they will see the, the, the time is coming where, oh my gosh, you know, the baby boomers are going to start getting Alzheimer's and it's going to be really scary. Yeah. And a, and a host of different neurological conditions that you study very intimately from a pathophysiological perspective. I mean, you really take a deep dive of like what is driving demyelination and things like ALS and MS and all these kind of weird demyelinating or myelin sheath disruptive um, diseases, which were relatively unheard of a hundred years ago. I mean, my understanding from an epidemiological perspective, and I haven't really dug into the data, but it's like, it's like an epidemic right now. Um, all of these inflammatory and nerve, um, like nerve inflammation type disorders and Alzheimer's. And, you know, it is kind of scary when you think about it, because I don't know, you, you spend, you, you live in this data world, so you know a lot more than I do. But in our generation, you know, people who are in their 40s and 50s now versus the baby boomers, are you already seeing a, a higher rate in these types of diseases in our age group? Or is it less, more? Or do you, are they, uh, is anyone looking into this? Um. That's a really good question, and um, I didn't prep you for that one. <laughs> no, I haven't been looking into that in our age group, right? Because we're so focused on trying to find something that can help, um, yeah. the older age group, right? Mm-hmm. So I think um, this is the, also the perfect time to focus on, you know, the beyond, right? And focus mm-hmm. on food health and and your health coming from the diet because uh, you can do that and. The problem with data, right, is that it takes a long time, time. In, a, in, a, in a human population to see what happens. Yep. And then by the time it comes, like when the baby boomers start getting Alzheimer's, it's going to be, oh, my gosh, too late. Well, yeah, I, I, well, luckily is. you're working on things to help with that. Absolutely. And it kind of mm-hmm. is, but it kind of isn't because what you said about the smoking thing. I mean, we figured it out. The tobacco companies were lying. They got busted. They had to pay back. And now we know mm-hmm. and less people smoke. And guess what? We're healthier now because of it. So yeah. this, you yep. know, we've eliminated that as a major driver of disease in our, in our culture, like the younger generations, like you look at the incidence of smoking it's crazy. So we know that their their you know need for pulmonology services having to do with COPD and other and you know vascular disease related to smoking are going to be less. But now we have this whole influx of inflammatory diseases from processed toxic foods, and I think that that'll be the new tobacco. Like I think in ten years that will be the conversation in public health and in legal and in regulatory circles. Sure could be. That's my guess. That's my guess. Right. And because, again, it, you know, I mean, what is a, you know, you you look in all of your foods and there's ascorbic acid or something in there, right? I mean, that's an Mm -hmm. antioxidant, right? But they're Mm -hmm. putting that in there to protect it from something, right? The air, basically, the oxidizing. But it needs these preservatives keep it around for years and years and years. And think about that. That's not good for your body. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Right. 
yeah, things need to be, things need to actually be digestible. And if they're super preserved, they're probably not digestible by you, just like they're not digestible and available to bacteriums and funguses and stuff. Yeah, so perfect. That's what I meant to say, but you said it perfect. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, your microbiome has to tackle that stuff. I mean, we don't digest food. Our microbiome does it for us. And then we get to absorb what's left over where there's a whole ecosystem inside of us. And so oh if we're if we're eating food that's like already has like intentional antimicrobial effects, well, uh, uh oh, like how's that going to affect the microbiome? We kind of have a problem here. So no wonder we have like massive malnutrition, but you know, I, 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 it's so much fun to think about, you know, the future and technology and the access to data that we have. And when we use it well, and we use it from a community do better perspective. And, you know, and I know I sent you over a little bit about Dan Kittredge's work at the Bionutrient Food Association, because he's not an academic. He's coming from private sector. He was an organic farmer growing up. And he was like, wow, what if we could get some sort of hands-on tool into consumers' hands where they could, you know, actually pick up a piece of food and evaluate it using tools that are available to chemists, but right there in the grocery store or right there in the farmer's market, or maybe right in your garden. And it's a really powerful notion. And he's the first to say that this technology is in its infancy and he, it's an open source technology. Cause he's like, help let's, let's make this a reality. Sure. And, but he's really doing a lot of very um, important work as far as like thought leadership in how we change the way we look at food. And, you know, I think that there's always this issue we'll be up against, and we just spoke about this before. Um, information and data is great, but information and data in the hands of people who don't truly understand how to use it could be kind of, kind of a weird, a weird thing to 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 kind of coax them through like a better process where it's not like, oh, this is evil. See, I just shot it with my little handheld mess vac and it doesn't have the nutrition and it's organic and I paid a buck more a pound for it. And like that could, that could turn into a mud flinging extravaganza, but you know, from the perspective of doing good and, and growing the movement and growing people's connection to food, what do you think that kind of technology could do to help people think about food in a new way? Oh, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And that's like you said, the person who buys this little mini handheld spectrometer will be a person that can understand the data right we hope um, but if it's not i mean that's the thing where it's expensive enough where you really want to know what the data is before you buy it right or you know mm -hmm. how to interpret it so that's good because um anything like this so yes i i agree i think it's a wonderful tool i think it's great the technology's small but from looking at um the website that these guys run it's cool because they're building the technology on mm -hmm. validated research right yeah so it's take this thing check it with the mini spec then check it with the big fancy million dollar thing and say, yeah oh, it's right cool throw that into yeah. the database that's awesome so the people who are making the dan right i mean wow yeah. they're doing their I mean, really it's... due diligence it's nice the diligence there is fantastic. And when you take a deeper dive into their labs that they're developing around the world, I mean, it's it's absolutely revolutionizing and it is it is a cool project. So someday when I'm a millionaire, I know where I'll be putting more money. But you know, it's a. Uh, it, in the meanwhile, they're 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 really coming at it from more of a. I don't know if they're a nonprofit or not, but they're coming at it from a very different angle so that it doesn't get gobbled up as a, I 
an IP grab from some big company that's trying to just leverage it for profit. They're really trying to grow the body of knowledge that'll help revolutionize the the notion of food as medicine and going beyond just these micro and macronutrients, like going into the whole host of micronutrients, like phytochemicals and stuff that are in food that we've ignored forever. It's all just in the ash or, you know, just the stuff that we've called anti-nutrients for so long. And mm-hmm. that is a real paradigm shifter when it comes to wheat. And when you look at like the value of wheat as a food, well, modern wheat as we know it doesn't look anything like um, ancient wheat grown regeneratively when you look at them side by side in a lab evaluation like he's doing. And that's a, that is a paradigm shifter right there. Oh, most definitely. And I like the way that he's doing it because it's not, I mean, if, if you were to say, make a hand, they're out there, right? But if you were to say, make a handheld for anybody to be able to purchase pesticide meter. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Would, be freaked out because before you walk in the door of the yeah. supermarket, that thing's it'd, in the it'd red be beeping. zone. Right? <laughs> yeah, it'd be beeping the minute you walk through the doors. Like, exactly. so, so crazy like, to think. Yeah, you buy your organic stuff that's right next to the non. You're like, oh my gosh, it's not organic anymore. There's all this no. stuff getting on it. It's like, come on, I'm yeah. trying here. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it, I mean, what's so crazy is that I know farmers that have been organic farmers, wheat farmers in Montana since the 90s. Remember when I had my Kinetic Cookies company? We were doing Montana organic yeah. wheat farm to fork so source. Cool. And uh, all these years ago. And, um, and they... They were totally organic. They've been organic this whole time. And even now when they do pesticide, herbicide, residual testing, they are positive because of the blow-in from neighboring fields. Right. Oh, it just kills me because they're doing such a good job. But, you know, to be surrounded in a pool of, of chemicals that are used indiscriminately... And that's the thing coming back to chemistry. Chemistry is amazing. Chemistry can do so much good, but we need to be judicious in our use of chemistry and not just indiscriminately spray it everywhere because, you know, every drop that gets sprayed is a, a another, you know, profit for the shareholder. It's like, well, that's not actually helping you guys. <laughs> like, it may be great for your profits today, but what's that going to do to the overall world? And if we're using these fantastic things indiscriminately, that, no, like you said early on, everything in moderation, yeah, and that's that's exactly right. But in a capitalistic society, you know, what's going to make us the most money the fastest? And it's mm-hmm. dumping a whole bunch of, you know, herbicide on a crop to make the weeds go away, but let the corn grow, you know. Mm-hmm. And it is, that's that's what it is now. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a natural molecule mm-hmm. out there right the plants lived before um yeah without these things what can we do it was well that costs 467 times as much as this chemical well if you want it to be safer we should yeah exactly this. and and not anymore necessarily because of what's happening with the pressure on fertilizer and other chemical inputs with the war um that's going to drive a lot of innovation in alternatives to management of weeds and pests and growing without chemically intensive fertilizers because suddenly the ROI is not what it used to be because the costs have skyrocketed. So it's a whole nother economic pressure that I think will drive a ton of innovation in regenerative and um, maybe a silver lining to a horrible situation. But like everything, even with COVID, 
there have been good things that have come out of it. Um, there's a little bit of good that comes out of everything, even the most horrible situations. It's kind of a sick way of looking at things, but <laughs> I guess you have to. I mean, it's like, what are you going to do? Just curl up in a ball and cry. You know, it's like, I'm always, you know me, I'm an optimist. So I'm always trying to look for some sort of silver lining. So on that note, you know, when you're looking around today at, at the world and all the things we're up against, it's kind of a weird time. What is giving you hope these days? Like, what's making you feel hopeful? My kids. Um, they're, and that's why if I can do it in my family, every family can do it, you know, and they have friends that I see their families, right? And it's like, they're asking good questions. They're nice to people. They have values. And good humans. <laughs> they're good humans. And we've taught them to listen to both sides, you know, because mm-hmm. then when you're growing up and you're learning and you're hearing somebody say, you want to be a billionaire? Let's farm this way. Or you want to be healthy? Let's farm this way. Guess what? They get to listen to both sides and they'll, yeah. they can be the mediator, right? And then, yeah. so, I mean, I think what, I think that where if we can still keep bringing up our future generations to know more about mm-hmm. these new pra- new old practices, yeah. that I just think they can start getting more and more and more implemented. And we focus more on people and health than the bottom line, I think. Yeah. And what ifs and curiosities instead of like, well, that won't work, you know? And I think this newer generation is does have a flair for open-mindedness and asking questions that I don't always see in my own generation. So, and I, yeah, I, I love that because, you know, raising a family is amazing and your wife is absolutely fantastic and super inspirational in her own right. So I'm sure like, you know, you see a lot of hope coming out of your whole household, which is really, really cool. So Hooray for the next generation. I mean, I get up every day and this is a hard road being a, a startup founder, but I'm like, you know what? We're doing it for our grandkids that we've never met or, you know, kids that if you don't have kids, like whatever, like the future. So that gives me hope too. So cheers to that. Yeah, definitely cheers to that. And it's just, we can, we can get better. We can definitely get better and um, hopefully they'll do it. Yep. Yep. Moving forward every day. Well, cool. Well, if people want to know more about your research, how do they find you? Where are the best places to get um, some more info about Travis, Travis D, Travis Denton's research lab and papers. Um, I, I know that you have published a lot of papers out there. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, um, I guess the best way is the way you don't want to tell anyone. Just Google it. You know, the, the full name Travis. And so PubMed's a good place. If you want to go and find papers from somebody, it's last name. And then the first two initials and those mm-hmm. come up and that, that is just kind of like talking about big data. You know, it's going to have 10,000 things pop up, but you still need to know it's the right person who wrote it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it's analyzing, you know, data that you get back. So you could do that. I mean, obviously, I'm a, I'm a professor of medicinal chemistry at Washington State University. I have a website there. Um, mm-hmm. we, we also have our own startup company called Autophage, where we're trying to use some of the technology that we've created here to spin it out into our own startup, which is you know the the business so cool. side of you coming out that I'm I pick <laughs> on the other on the other days, um, just so <laughs> we can make these medicines. And again, we base a lot on. 
the essential oils that we use and the natural products in which from where these things came from to try to we're pushing a a new medicine for these neurodegenerative disorders so um so cool yeah maybe we'll do a part two and just talk about (laughs) autophage therapeutics because it kind of deserves its own topic of of focus so we'll have to do a a follow-up session i i would love to talk about you know more science and stuff too we 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 have anti-cancer program here in our lab we have an ant- a neuroscience program and we have sustainable practices with biodegradable polymers from new- renewable resources to try to remove cool. some of this non-biodegradable plastic from the ecosystem Amazing. we have all kinds of cool stuff going on in the lab with lots of really neat friends and collaborators love it yeah I, I, it's so great get you know getting all of that lab um, story out into the world. Cause I think if anyone had any idea how much amazing research was being done at universities across the country and around the world, like it's mind boggling. It's just often kind of there on campus and it doesn't get out into the greater, um, you know, public sphere quite as much as it should. So yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. We'll do another one. (laughs) Yeah. We'll do another one. (laughs) We'll do a follow up. I'm excited. So yeah, I mean, great. how how great is that? That would be like, oh, here comes the enemy, the devil, the chemist, right? Into <laughs> your audience again. They can be like, oh, well, I guess it's not that bad. They're trying to do something, right? <laughs> no, I think our audience is looking for people who are doing good for the world from all different walks of life. And I mean, the last recording, it was all venture capital and investment. And ah. there's certainly a lot of people who consider that also to be the evil side of the forest too. But when you really think about it with that open-minded perspective of like not right, not left, but forward kind of concept, like my friend Jason says, um, you're like, you no longer view anything as like, oh, that's the evil side or the dark side. You're like, oh, cool. This person can bring in the good and the value of that profession or focus or whatever it may be. And and together, that's how we're going to build the world that we want to see. Well, your community is what I want for my community. <laughs> nice. They are the people that I want to talk to. This is wonderful. Love it. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. It's always such a pleasure. I can't wait to go down to the beach this summer with you know, your family and let's kick back and enjoy a cold beverage and, and relax. So looking forward Sounds to it. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Travis. Thank talk you. to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.